Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. What is up, Gromies? Welcome to Arroyo Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm your moderator, Keisha. This is episode 94. If you're on the Hangout or checking us out live on YouTube or Instagram, be sure to drop your question in the chat. And if it gets picked, we're going to cover it during the show. Seth, Jason, gentlemen, how are you doing today? Doing well. Doing great. Awesome. Okay. I'm going to get right to it. This is a great question. We get a lot of questions about pH. So, um, Kootenay Craft Cannabis dropped their data with us on Instagram, feeding 4.0 EC and pH 5.9, pH stable in pipes after sitting still at 5.9, plants are very healthy, cocoa one gallon bags, day 25, substrate EC 7 at full saturation, runoff EC 9, runoff volume 500, pH is 5.2. Any thoughts on why runoff pH is low? What actions, if any, to get my pH closer to my feed pH? Yeah, so I think probably the best place to start here is a little bit of a definition of what's what pH means in the root zone, right? So pH as a base, we're looking at the concentration of positive ions in solution, hydrogen ions specifically. And when we put different salts into solution, they dissolve, dissociate, and now we have positive and negative ions floating around in solution. So pH is really looking at that balance between positive and negative ions. And the more positive charge we have in the solution, the lower that pH number is. So the reason that pH number drops between input water and runoff water is because while the plant's sitting in that solution all day, it's pulling up specifically at night, it's pulling up more, uh, it's pulling out negative ions. Most of our plant essential elements are negative ions once they're in dissociated form from salts. So that plant as it feeds is constantly, you know, shifting that solution to have a more positive charge because it's pulling the negative charge out of it. So if your plant's feeding at a healthy rate, we should see a little bit of a pH drop. Now, over time, as you're building up EC in your substrate, it's important to make sure you're getting enough runoff early on. So if we want to build EC, but we cut off runoff for like, let's say seven days, there's a good chance that although we're building EC, we're building a lower pH solution because that balance isn't correct. So your best approach is to usually feed heavy, push a little more runoff. If you're at a three, three Oh, sometimes bumping up to a three, five to help refresh and replace and reset that uh, ion balance in the root zone. So. Yeah. And, and really, you know, from a plant's perspective, the reason that pH is so important is because it affects how those different ions are uptaken and, and metabolized by the plant. Right. So when, you know, when we take a look at um, nutrient availability, it is actually somewhat affected by our different pH levels. Um, there's, I love looking at the charts on, on, um, on the internet, as far as the solubilities of our macros our micros and getting an idea of, all right, well, when I'm at this specific pH, I am, kind of just trying to wager what what is making most nutrients most available right and so as we go lower in ph certain nutrients are going to be uh, more available to the plant as we go higher in ph uh, a different set of nutrients are going to be more available in the plant and so we're always trying to find hey where what's that happy medium that allows us to basically balance its uptake in in the um in the system there. And so, you know, at 5.2 pH, yeah, you're, you're just a little bit low. And I, I think I would follow Seth's advice here just perfectly and in, in looking to correct it. Um, obviously, if, if you do that and you aren't getting quite the results that you wanted, you're not seeing that that rise up to the 5.9 on your feed, then um, then you might think about, all right, maybe maybe my nutrient balance isn't quite right. If it's something that yeah, you're mixing up yourself or you're not following the uh, manufacturer's instructions, um, or you are following the manufacturer's instructions, then uh, th then you might think about just adjusting some of those ratios a little bit and see if that doesn't help the um, the balance of um, of cations and anions in solution on that uh, plant. 
Yeah, I wish we'd prepared a chart for a visual because it really is cool when you when you look at all of those different availabilities lined up in a visual chart and you can see why we typically want it between 5.6 and 6.0. That being said, there are some uh, nutrients out there that are meant to be mixed at like, let's say a 5.6 compared to a 6.0, for instance. And some of that has to do with solubility issues with different salts. And it's great to pull up. I think Jason's going to pull up this chart now. It's it's good to remember, though, you know, once we see this, we see tapering availability of nutrients down at low pH and high pH. But at 5.2, for instance, we still have plenty of availability for nutrients to be uptaken by the plant. The important thing is to keep monitoring it. So when we see that pH drifting low, that's when we really do want to keep making sure we're getting runoff every single day, usually that 5 to 10 percent minimum of irrigation volume. And that way we can also get a, a good pH sample. And it's important too, when you're doing this to make sure you're irrigating slowly and actually hitting field capacity before you get runoff. So that way your sample actually reflects what's in the block and isn't artificially high because you're pushing water through just to get that runoff. Yeah. So I, I did want to just pull it up because well, Seth and I were both mentioning how valuable that these can be. And one of the things that you definitely want to make sure is that the chart that you're using is applicable for the media that you're in. Um, so if I'm in Rockwell, it's a substantially different pH range for that optimal rather than if I'm in something like soil. And so, yeah, uh, you know, if, if we were looking for cocoa, I might throw c cocoa in my search line. Um, I'm just going to pull up this research gate one because they're usually some pretty solid um, publications here. And so if we see, uh, you know, it looks like, all right, well, nitrogen's optimal uptake would be between seven and seven, five in, in this specific range here. Uh, I wonder what kind of substrate I'm looking at here. Yeah. And, th and that's another important thing too, when we're talking about, you know, rock wool or straight cocoa, those are pretty unbuffered media. So we have really good control of what's going on. If you're running a pre-bagged mix, that does have any buffering capacity in it, that's something to be aware of. You might not have to do nearly as much adjustment with your pH to achieve a stable range just because your soil or your media has some buffering capacity in it. All right, here we go. So this one's from the Cocoa Depot. Um, and open image, new tab. Let's see if we can get a nice view on this here. All right, there we go. So this one's specifically for cocoa um and obviously there's some differences among cocoa but we got to make some generalizations so we can see all right here for nitrogen um you know our optimal ranges are, are actually a little bit on the the very balanced side and so that's one where we're trying to ride, ride right on the edge for phosphorus we can see all right we actually have a steep curve you know as we go lower than 6.0 uh, we start to lose that solubility now you know down lower on the chart when we look at something like manganese or this this copper and zinc areas we can see all right well if we go lower we have higher solubility but if we go up there higher where we might see phosphorus to be very available uh, we, we lose out on some of those and so if we get our sweet little pin out here we can talk about all right what's the optimal ranges for these and I, that page didn't let me get my pin out so it's actually we're gonna be in purple today and we'll talk about all right so for cocoa probably if we run in a range right here then we're going to you know, take advantage of the solubilities of the ones that prefer a little bit more balanced or a, a higher amount of basic um, and the ones that are more acidic. I think it's important to consider too the phase of growth that you're in. So when we're looking at stretch, for instance, those first few weeks and then going into mid-bulking, nitrogen is very important. So if that pH drifts too low, we're starting to limit nitrogen. Uh, phosphorus and potassium. Those are our three main plant essential elements. So dropping it down early in the growth phase is starting to limit that. And that's when we see, you know, some of those classic lockout symptoms that we've talked about for years, where basically we're just making the plant deficient in some of its main elements and it's unable to uptake them. However, you know, later in flower, we still want to maintain a good pH. But if we're talking about, you know, week eight or nine, and we're seeing that drift happen at a point in the time, the plant's life cycle where it should be feeding less, and starting to finish, it's a little bit less of a concern. But if we're seeing that pH drift in those first two to three weeks, that's when we're really going, okay, there's something either wrong with how we're mixing the nutrients, the composition, or typically haven't been pushing quite enough runoff to reset that balance every day. So over time, we've built up a high concentration of ions or salts in the, in the substrate, but it's not the ones we want. It's the ones we want to kind of push out and replace with some of those fresh negative ions. Yeah, and actually, one of the things that um, 
might also be an option is think about what you're using as a pH adjuster in your system. There are certain chemicals that actually will prolong how well that pH is adjusted for. Um, so in this case, you know, if, if you are using something like a, you know, a nitric acid, which has a, a lot of residual, that stuff will maintain a, a acidic component to your your feed for a long time um so you might you know move to something that's a little bit less powerful um and, and same with vice versa on the the basic side if you're using something that that doesn't uh have that buffering capacity then then choose one that that stabilizes your, your basic component a little bit longer um the fact that you are five nine in the pipes means that that's probably not the first thing to look at though yeah. Yeah. There's a few different things to look at when we're talking about pH and solution. Um, another important one is, you know, how are you mixing up your tank? So for instance, I've worked in places where we're, our groundwater is coming out that we used to mix at 7.5 to 8.2. Depending on the volume I'm mixing up uh, and how much salt I'm loading that up with, I might actually end up putting in a substantial amount of pH down is a commonly named product, usually phosphoric acid. At a certain point, that's starting to affect my P value my phosphorus value in my mix. And another thing to consider, you know, if you're having to adjust your pH quite a lot, but uh, apart from your input water, you know, are you mixing your salts in first up at like a 7.8 and then trying to pH down from there? Because if so, you're probably gonna have some solubility issues. It's gonna be hard to really nail that EC or PPM value fully dissolved that you're looking for. So right back to, you know, always reference your manufacturer's suggested mixing instructions, and then don't be scared to call them and ask. You know, any, any nutrient company you're working with, if their product has special mixing instructions, they usually try to include it. And then if your water quality and not necessarily quality, but like, let's say your pH coming out of the ground is quite high or quite low, it's always a good idea to consult that manufacturer and say, Hey, what would you guys do in order to mix this properly and make sure that all of my nutrients are getting dissolved and I'm not having any unintended fallout or pH swings. The chemistry on it isn't super complicated, but these companies do put a lot of uh, effort into their R&D to try to make sure they figure out how to use these in like every possible application they can get into, right? They want to make money. So that's probably one of the, a very good thing to research. Um, and we don't know, you know, from this question, what the, what the input water pH is like, but that's just another thing to keep an eye on because especially if you've, you know, move from area to area or you're moving building to building. That's part of why we see, you know, like RO being so popular in commercial installations, because sometimes it's easier just to strip everything out than to try and deal with whatever particular problem you have there. Like if you've got a really high carbonate load, like, okay, do we try to chemically buffer that out or do we just filter it and have full control? And that turns out to be maybe not more economic in the end, but sometimes just easier in terms of like, effort, input, labor, and uh, risk. Yeah, another thing, you know, kind of think about is, all right, what was the pH of the media before I even started growing in it? Um, and you know, I think a few episodes back, we kind of, we hit on a, a lot of, uh, you know, initial soak up procedures that that are really important to try and get that pH to be a more stabilized area. Um, you know, fortunately, things like cocoa are, are a little bit buffered. And then unfortunately, if they already have a pH that's way off, that buffering is going to resist a change to the pH. And so it might take a little bit longer. Um, you know, you might even be somewhat into the run before you see that pH stabilized in the ranges you want. Yeah. And, you know, if you're if you're dealing with a media where that's a persistent problem long term, you might start to consider some of the economic impacts of having to rinse your media before you charge it like quite a lot with nutrient solution because RO is not necessarily going, you know, just putting in straight RO is not really going to change that pH in the root zone. We've got to reset that with some sort of ion, ideally the ions we want for plant health. Oh my God. Outstanding. You guys, great overview. Just, I want to ask this follow-up that was posted on YouTube just to kind of close out this conversation. Um, all questions are welcome, but uh, we got the post here. Hey guys, I have more of the opposite problem with pH. Feeding pH 5.8 to 5.9, EC feeding at two. My drybacks are just cutting it at 10 to 15%. My runoff pH is 6.5 to 6.6. How do I go about getting pH in range? What would you advise for this person? So, so on this one, I think uh, this one's easier to answer because it sounds like it, you know, feed of uh, 2.0 EC is probably going to be the, the, the main contributor uh, in this one, that's your, your plants are running out of, out of nutrition. You know, as Seth was mentioning a lot of what, uh, what those plants are eating up, um, 
are going to be the, the, you know, the, the ions that, uh, help stay in, in that range. And so when, um, when your EC is that low, you're probably just seeing an imbalance in the nutrients. Yeah. And that's something important to remember, you know, when your feed and in, your input EC is low, it's highly likely that your root zone EC is going to be fairly low because you're not loading it up enough to really overcome the needs of the plant and stack on EC above that. So when we're at a low EC state, if, you know, we equate 3.0 EC to 1500 PPM and the plants taking out, and this, this isn't, you know, anything precise, but it's a good visualization that I like to use. And that's if I have 1500 PPM of salt of in the, in the media and the plants pulling out on average, uh, or we're seeing about a 500 PPM difference in between the time that, you know, we load the block up. And then the end of the day, when we irrigate again, 500 PPM and a 1500 PPM uh, load is a pretty big shift. And that's going to have a big impact on your pH. And, you know, when we see pH going up rather than down, um, number one, we're seeing an imbalance between what's available to the plant, what it's pulling out. So that's something to look at. Another one is to start to go look at your environment and make sure you're having consistent VPD day and night. So we're actually getting proper uptake of nutrients overnight. What is your light load like? Do you have a really poorly lit room? Um, that can definitely be part of the equation here where we're putting all that in and the plant's not really used, utilizing as much as that of that as we expect. So we're pushing that pH up in range. There's, there's a few different things to look at. And like everything, you know, check all your boxes and make sure everything is in line for every parameter that you want to achieve here. If we're chasing pH, but we know we've got pretty bad environmental problems, it's going to be hard to really, really correct that pH in a meaningful way until we get that environment back in line. And then, you know, the important part of that to consider too, is if you are like, if our pH is low and then we've got some environmental issues, we've got to fix that environmental issue at the end of the day to get the yield and quality we want. So, you know, it's kind of back to the old, there's no, no easy bandaid with this and everything is interconnected to an extent. Yeah. And you know, one of the, one of the, I think misconceptions that hopefully um, by following some of the, you know, traditional ag and, and, so the scientific parameters that we're seeing these days is we'd rather probably just be overfeeding slightly with these plants than underfeeding them, right? When we consider all of the cost factors that are going into growing cannabis, we would rather just be, you know, wasting just a tad bit of money on, on probably nutrients than losing money uh, based on uh, short, shortcutting the nutrients. You know, when we think about all of the inputs that uh, are cost inputs to grow cannabis, nutrients is usually not one of the top three. Yeah. You know, a good thing too, to really keep in mind looking at big ag models is like, although across the country, we've seen cannabis fall to commodity prices everywhere. The commodity price for cannabis is still incredibly high compared to other forms of biomass that people grow to sell for food. So it's, it's a little bit of a paradigm shift where in traditional agronomy, we are looking at, Hey, what's the absolute minimum we can use to get an acceptable harvest. And then saying like, okay, as long as we hit this mark, we're good economically. Right. Well, with cannabis, we have the opportunity to push it past that point and actually reap a pretty big benefit out of it. So it's worth it to put, you know, run on the excessive side compared to the, um, the deficient side. And also, you know, if your plant, and obviously there's some genetic differences in here, but most plants, if we're taking care of it properly and letting it go through its, you know, after 12, 12 flip determinate life cycle, we can guide that in. And basically if our nutrient composition is correct going towards the end, we are going to waste a lot of that. As the plant starts to enter senescence, a lot of those, it stops feeding. A lot of those nutrients are just flowing right by it out the bottom of the pot. And we're just maintaining pH and EC. But that's an example of where, you know, if we go too far one way, uh, a two-week flush sounds great if you, you know, don't use nutrients for two weeks. That's a lot of, a lot of you know, money savings on your crop. But we know now that that's not actually beneficial here. So even though we don't have perfect use on the plant's parts of the nutrient, um, it's still worth it to have it in there. Awesome, you guys. pH in a nutshell, just blinding everybody with science. Thank you guys for that. We're going to keep it moving. Our Gromy Cypher's on the line. He had a question about cure room and humidity. Cypher, you want to unmute yourself and speak your mind? Yes. So I do have a climate-controlled curing room, uh, you know, HVAC cooling, uh, dehumidification. For the first, you know, 
seven to 10, 12 days, my parameters stay within where I want, about 60, 60. However, towards the trailing end, it starts to drop in humidity. I do have an ultrasonic humidifier in there, but it just seems wrong to me to be dumping water vapor into my curing space. Do you guys have any recommendations? Is there any standard procedures, potentially a better humidifier or anything you guys could let me know that that might ease my my tensions and dumping water vapor into my curing room? Sure. So, you know, when you think about the the moisture release curves from cannabis in the room, obviously we're going to be first few days we're dumping a lot of humidity from the plant mass into the room right we're looking at you know a, a plant uh mass by water weights like you know, we're almost 90 percent water in cannabis and so right off the bat obviously the cannabis plant is re- relieving a lot of its water content right into the room and as we start to get lower and lower and lower in water content uh the release is actually going to be slower and slower and slower. Just the total amount of water in the room has decreased significantly. And so I think that's, you know, that's what you're seeing there at day seven, day 10. I guess the question from my end would be, um, you know, what, uh, what water activities, um, what moisture contents are you seeing in the bud itself at those seven to 10 days? And, or, you know, can you possibly just, you know, start to start to cure that product in, in totes or in bins um, at that point? Yeah. Okay. And, and another thing to look at data is, you know, what kind of dehumidification equipment do you have in there? Does it have the ability to phase out so you can, you know, the drying process, you start with barely being able to keep up typically. Then if you've got enough capacity and you have too big a units, you can't slow down that dehumidification later on and slow down that drying process. So sure. getting, getting some kind of moisture analysis is probably your best bet because we've seen uh, especially strain dependent in the same facility, grow in the same way, fairly different drying times on different strains, just due to bud size, density. Uh, I mean, potency could even affect how quickly that water comes out of there. So getting a way to put a number on it and then really dial it in per strain, because I mean, a, a great example is in one room, we might see some trains come down at day seven. They've hit the desired water activity below 0.65. Some we might be pulling down at more like 10 or 11. You know, and then another part of it too is how much volume the room has. That's one factor I've definitely seen where, hey, we've got a big amount of biomass we're moving into this room that's got a really tall ceiling. And that's great at first because we've got a lot of expansion room to breathe, but down the line, it might become very difficult to control that bigger environment. That's why, you know, when you're looking at like, let's say curing room design, you only want it to be so big because it costs a lot of money to condition that air and keep it where you want it. Um, the smaller a container you have, <laughs> the easier it is to control that. But that does come with the caveat of having enough equipment to pull a lot of moisture out of that small space. I see. So there really is no advantage to to dumping more water vapor into the room to keep it at that 60% relative humidity. It's more based on what the flower itself is doing. Yeah. And, and there, there totally is an advantage if that's what you've got to do to start to, to try to maintain that environment, right? Like you want to keep it at that 60 and 60 as much as possible. And Correct. that might be the, unless you have a way to really turn down your dehumidifier or somehow stop your AC in the room from pulling extra moisture out, that sometimes right. is the only solution is to put it back in. And, when and that's kind of what happens, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, I get to a point where, well, I will stop with my dehumidification because it does not need dehumidification because it's going so low, but I still do need to keep that 60 degrees. So that mm-hmm. is pulling out again, some humidity. So I put an ultrasonic in there and it's RO water in the, in the ultrasonic, but am I doing, would I be doing damage by putting that water vapor back into the room to try to stretch out to, cause I mean, this is happening like, you know, like I said, day seven, mm-hmm. eight, nine, ten, where we're trying to stretch it out to more like a 14 day curing time or whatever. So I mean, as long as that water is fully atomized, um, it shouldn't cause any issues. Um, so really what we're thinking here is obviously if we're at 60, 60 in a room at 60% humidity, um, you know, we could, 
dry that cannabis indefinitely and it's only going to homogenize at 0.6 water activity right and sure, so that's that's sure. kind of one of those things where it's like we we know we're pretty safe to not be quite as worried about over drying if those are the room parameters um that bud when we talk about water activity uh you know 0.6 is a pretty reasonable range to try and target and so it's going to homogenize 0.6 water activity in a 60 percent humidity room uh, there's going to be no moisture going into that product no moisture going out of that product yeah and as far as your, as far as the or the uh, humidifier goes using an ultrasonic or some kind of a fogger is going to be a lot better than having you know any kind of a spray system in there that would risk getting you know the big thing there right is just don't get water on your dried buds don't let them sure, get wet and sure. start to form some mold one thing i've done in the past is just shove that ultrasonic in a corner and then kind of manipulate it with fans so i don't have that vapor stream going straight at the plants i'll put the fans so that it's pushing it up or at an angle with the that's, ultrasonic as a though, matter of fact that's kind of how we yep. have it right we have it so we're not dumping actual vapor onto where our plants are hanging but like i said it just seems it just seems so weird to me to be adding humidity to a dry room so that's why i wanted to get your opinion so i appreciate that you guys have explained a lot and helped ease my mind a little bit so i appreciate you guys thanks man yeah no problem I don't know. Well, final note, dude, cigar stores Thank do the you. same thing. They have a, hum they yeah, have a humidor right. to, mm -hmm. to keep that right where it's at. And that's just a humidifier in a wooden box. Right, right, right. And I was thinking maybe there was a, maybe a different type of humidifier that would be better than an ultrasonic that maybe you guys could tell me about. Maybe I was missing out on something, but I think you guys have explained it well, so. Yeah, I mean, there's there's products out there like Fogco is a popular one that's in use in a lot of grow grow rooms, but you don't really have to get too elaborate with it as long as you're getting enough to keep up with needs. Cool, awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate you. Appreciate you, Cipher. Thank you. Keep keep us posted. All right. For sure. Let okay. Excellent. All right. We got a couple live questions here. Um, our good friend Iron Armor posted on YouTube. I'm doing a small perpetual harvest in a tent, planning on putting in a plant every, one, every 21 days. What is responsible VPD to keep the tent at since I will have three plants at three different stages? I'd shoot for 1.2. Yep, that's, that's probably your happiest medium where you're not going to dry out your young plant too much and you're not going to make it too humid for your plants finishing. Word, iron armor. Good luck. All right, and I keep it moving here. We got this question over on Instagram from Q. They write, Floraflex running in at three to three point two, five point nine pH. I'm running a greenhouse, so my CO two levels and temps flex. Hit five point two pH the other day on my runoff. I dropped my nutrients just a little bit and up my volume. Should I go up an EC if most of my strains are looking amazing? And then uh, they continued, I only have about 10 plants with some discoloration, but my pH is still low on a few different sections, strains. What do y'all think? I missed some of those first numbers, but usually oh, sure. I, yeah. I would, I would up your, up your feed EC yeah. and up your volume say. also. We need to get more ionic replacement going on in there to reset that balance. And just remember, you know, like when you're trying to, we always try to go, you know, traditional knowledge is go back to like, try to flush it out. Straight water is going to fix the problem. Straight water can't affect that pH very much. When you uh, just dilute something at a certain pH, that doesn't change the pH. You'll have a, a lower concentration of ions, but that ratio is not going to change if we're just adding water to the equation and trying to flush some of it out. So it, although it's not intuitive, raising your feed EC is probably the correct move here. And then just, you know, make sure you're pushing enough runoff and monitor it. If you're at 5.2 and it doesn't go right back up to 5.6, that's okay. If it goes up a little bit over time, that's what we want to see. And hey, if it stays between 5.2 and 5.4 for the rest of the run and your plant health is looking okay, I probably wouldn't obsess too much. Um, it's usually when we see that trend continue to go down that it's really worrying because it's like, okay, we know this is heading somewhere that's going to end up with us having a completely deficient plant. Where do we need to take the action to prevent that from happening? Awesome, you guys. Thank you, Q. Good luck. All right. We got this question in on Instagram. Durban Hayes 420 is looking for some advice 
what are the recommended time and amount of runoff throughout the plant's like let me start again. What are the re- recommended time and amount of runoff throughout the plant's life cycle in one gallon cocoa coir? What would you advise for them? I mean, a lot of it's just going to kind of depend on what what you're seeing as far as red zone ECs. Um, that's usually what I use to dictate how much runoff that I'm shooting for. Uh, you know, as I'm doing generative stacking, I'll typically only have enough runoff in order to get pH measurements um, from from my, my slap straight there. Um, and, you know, considering you're in a one gallon cocoa, my guess is you're going to have quite a few irrigations going on. Uh, and so when we look at the opportunity there to stabilize our EC or let it rise, we have even more opportunities because we're irrigating more times, right? And even then, if we have significant runoff any of those times, we might be wasting some nutrients. Uh, we might be losing an opportunity to stack EC. Um, that being said, during our vegetative bulking ranges, typically I will get enough runoff in order to bring my EC down into check. Um, and again, as I said, with you know, that smaller substrate and the number of P2 irrigations that you're having in, in vegetative bulking, you may not even need to target a significant amount of runoff and you may just actually initially get that runoff for the first few days and and then decrease irrigations um you know the the whole goal of runoff is just to alter the substrate parameters slightly in order to achieve your your desired parameters right and so um uh, runoff isn't doing anything for the plant necessarily it's just doing things to manipulate the substrate yeah, we're just trying to refresh that nutrient composition there and keep the pH in check. And usually, I mean, 5 to 10, sometimes 15% of total irrigation volume as runoff is pretty adequate to maintain that, you know. And one important thing too, you know, we kind of pH seems to be the theme here, but that throughout those first three to four weeks when your plant really is growing, pH is very, very critical. So although, you know, we want to see salt stacking up in the root zone, for instance, still want to keep that pH in check, which means, you know, if the plant's feeding a lot, we really need to up that feed EC to keep up with the plant's needs and actually go above that a little bit to stack while also pushing that runoff to keep that pH in range as we're stacking those nutrients up. All right. Thank you guys. Um, Durban Haze 420. Good luck. Make me think of Durban poison. One of my favorites. Okay, moving on. Tom dropped this question on YouTube. They want to know, towards the end of the run, when you're lowering the room temperature, should you drop both the daytime and nighttime temperatures or just nighttime temperatures? And what would the target temps be? Good advice you have for Tom. Yeah, I mean, so this is going to be a little bit strain dependent and how long you're dropping them for as well. Um, Typically, I don't try to drop the room any lower than about 75 for my my daytime temps. Um, And then I'll do a max of a a 10 degree differential night to daytime. Um, You know, if you go any lower than that and you're still having a significant nighttime daytime temp, you're you're probably just losing out on some yield because we're getting below some of the the optimal rates of plant growth. Um, When we think about it, all right, what are our goals of dropping temperatures? Uh, Typically, we talk about anthocyanin production. So, uh, that's 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 the result responsible for the the purple coloring that we see in there and a lot of times we can get enough anthocyanin production just by dropping nighttime temps keeping our daytime temps close to where we might have been at and optimize the yield there Um, sometimes a little bit cooler temperatures we can actually get a little bit harder buds as well a little bit more dense so it's going to kind of depend on how does that strain respond to a change in those daytime temps Yeah, there's, you know, obviously some pretty big strain differences and take into account what your lighting is. And when you're trying to dial these room parameters, one of your best friends can be a little, is going to be a little laser thermometer because we're always focusing on what is that, you know, the room temp, that's, that's all great. But what is your actual plant temp? What does that leaf surface temp look like? So if I'm trying to get that overnight differential, especially in like, let's say an HPS room, I definitely do want to lower that ambient daytime temp down to let's say 75 because my average plant temp is still going to be in that 78 to 80 range. Uh, whereas if you have LEDs, it's really important to go out there and get that temp because 75 degrees in the room with an HPS for the plants might be a lot more like running it at 78 to 80 ambient temp in the room under your LEDs. So really make sure you're targeting that actual leaf surface temp. And then from there, we want to see an actual 10 degree 
10 to even up to a 15 degree differential in the actual plant surface temperature. So for HPS growers, traditionally that meant, you know, daytime temps for the last two or three weeks running down at 75 as an average in the daytime down to 65 at night. With LED, especially if you have really good airflow, we might be looking at more like 80 to 82 in the daytime all the way down to 65 at night. But as Jason said, you know, there's a there's a balance between slowing down plant metabolism and promoting certain characteristics like hardening up the nugs. And then there's obviously like an upper limit to how hot you want to go before you start hitting things like foxtailing, lower potency, uh, bigger stretched out individual cells on the buds. So, I mean, short, sweet answer is yes, we do want to drop that temperature. And part of it's because, hey, this plant evolved to ripen up generally in the fall, anywhere it was growing naturally, it's ripening up as it's getting colder. That's a signal we're sending to the plant that, hey, we're going into fall time to continue to ripen up and focus on reproductive growth more and more rather than any more vegetative growth. Yeah. And, and you know, I think one of the important things that's always hard for, um, for me to incorporate into these conversations as well is, you know, when we're talking about a specific number, um, you know, we're not always representing, all right. I mean, that's usually the set point that we're trying to manipulate. It's not representing the space of the room or the plant population. Correct. And, and this is really where taking more samples of, of leaf temp and or considering, all right, where, where is my thermometer or my, um, um, my humidity sensor in the room and is it representing it specifically, right? So when we look at any, any population of, of those plants or any analysis of the volume in that room, it's going to follow a T-curve and we need to analyze, all right, does the sensor we're reading, does our set point represent the exact middle of this T-curve and how wide is the standard of deviation for this? All right. So let's say, um, let's say we've got a big greenhouse and we're at, you know, 10 degree, um, deviation across the room. Well, if, if we're pushing to a set point at say, you know, 65 degrees, um, we might be starting to push the boundaries in some of those cooler areas. So do keep that in mind when you're making these decisions on how, how far do I want to push these set points? Um, do I have the tight enough, uh, deviance in the room or variation in the room? Is it tight enough to really start pushing the envelope on how much I can in induce these favorable characteristics? Yeah. And that's a great point bringing up like the greenhouse, because that's not the only situation where we've got, you know, a gradient in temperature and humidity on a, in a room based on how the airflow works inside of that room. Um, you know, a great example for anyone who lives in a Northern climate, if you're in a greenhouse is this time of year, it's, it was 34 degrees out, I believe <laughs> when I parked my truck and, uh, okay. Can I get that nighttime temp lower? Absolutely. Can I lower it in the day for sure? But what does that, what does that mean in my environment? And here on the Palouse, uh, that means pulling in 34 degree air right now to the front of the room. So suddenly if I try to make too drastic of a change, um, now I've got a really, really big gradient between the front and the back of my room to the point where if I've got, let's say a 40 foot long bench, the front third of that, it's going to have a significantly darker color because it's experiencing 34 degree air coming into the room. And by the time it's hit the back of the bench, we've actually had some homogenization because of the different fans in the greenhouse and that, you know, not as dramatic in most indoor settings, but you really want to think about how homogenous your room is and what those effects have. Because if I go like, let's say set a room down to 65 and that means one corner of the room goes to 58 right next to the AC register, I might be having some condensation issues that, um, number one, not great to have any kind of condensation in the room dripping on your buds. That's usually how we see aspergillus pop up in its most severe forms. And a lot of times that's going to happen at night. So you might not be aware that it's happening until you see the damage that's going to come from having your buds get rained on. Yeah, it, it just reminded me of an anecdote and, and and how much fun some of this stuff can be when you get to face a challenge like that. You know, right, right now, if you pop that wet wall open to try and induce a little bit of uh, temperature drop there, um, like you said, 34 degree air coming in. And I was like, all right, let's program the gable vent to open anytime that we've got a bigger temperature difference. Uh, don't use the wet wall, use the gable vent. And then, you know, even on a day like today where we're 
very overcast it might actually be beneficial to close up the blackout a little bit and then when we're using that gable vent we might even have a more stabilized environment across the room so you know whatever situation you're in try to try to spend the time in there to really get the feel of it um, take measurements so that you have a agnostic answer of what's going on in there on top of your feel see if those agree with each other and and then start to get creative with how you can make the best of the space yeah, absolutely. I love the blackout example. I drove by a greenhouse on the way here that had their blackouts pulled and lights on or their blackouts pulled mostly a little bit of heat regulation, but that's because right now it's uh, really hard to heat that greenhouse in an efficient way where you don't get condensation on the ceiling. And well, there's really no, uh, no greenhouse panel out there that's nearly as well insulated as like a regular wall <laughs> or insulated roof. So Hey, in that situation, that does end up being the solution. Does it seem kind of odd to pull your blackouts because you want to use the sun? Sure, but it's way better to pull your blackouts and not have your crop get rained on a few times a day than it is to deal with that. I love that troubleshooting reminder. We are, this is a resourceful community we have here. So love that. All right, we're going to change gears a little bit. This question came in a few weeks ago. We weren't able to get to it. We get so many questions. Love it. Thank y'all for that. But Chronic Sosa recently got powdery mildew in week six of flower. They want to know, do you think I can still use it to make bubble hash? It's not really that bad. It's just on some leaves. And then also after dealing with powdery mildew indoors, what would you recommend to kill all these mold spores for home growers? Let's talk about it. Uh, I'm... I mean, if it's a home grower thing, like you can smoke whatever you want to smoke. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sorry. laughs> so there is that. Uh, would would I make bubble hash out of it? Um, I guess it depends how much product I have and how much I need and what I need to do with it. Um, I, you know, it, uh, a distillation would probably be a, a safer bet for anything that that is contaminated a little bit like that. Um, so, you know, that's kind of some of the fun of, of home growing too. It's like, you know, which, which buddy, which buddy's going to get the rough sack here today. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you just got to watch out. Maybe he's also one of your best friends to make sure that you're, you're not getting whipped up on at the end of the day. Um, yeah. And typically too, I mean, it just depends on how bad it is, right? <clears throat> Did you just see it on those bigger fan leaves? Did it, was it setting in on the actual bud leaves themselves? That's a lot of that's definitely going to be up to your judgment. It's not generally as bad to encounter powdery mildew as it is, let's, let's say, uh, an aspergillus-related infection or botrytis. Um, that being said, I didn't see how much snow is all over your plants. So <laughs> let that. as far as cleaning goes, though, um, hey, don't be scared of bleach. Clean the absolute shit out of your entire grow area. Start to be really careful about what clothes you wear and don't wear in, you know, just because you're not at a, you know, big scale professional facility doesn't mean like, Hey, you shouldn't have some biosecurity rules about what shoes you decide to wear in, whether or not you have inside and outside clothes. Uh, you know, a lot of the facilities out there have gone to like, if not providing scrubs for their employees, at least saying, Hey, we've got locker rooms and you do a clothes swap in, at the very least shoe swap, but ideally a clothes swap in between walking in off the street and going into the grow room. And then don't discount like uh, when you're trying to get rid of powdery mildew or mold in an environment, it's uh, to me can be kind of similar to trying to get rid of thrips. So start looking for all the nooks and crannies and places that you can have biomass build up and uh, don't discount the smallest amounts of organic matter and dust that can actually hold some of these spores and keep them around. The thing with powdery mildew is it typically comes in. It's not the easiest thing to control. If you can keep your humidity in check, it usually doesn't get too bad. But once it's in your system, you want to really, really be careful and clean it out. And sometimes, you know, especially if we're talking about a, a garage or basement or whatever, smaller facility, um, your dry room might not be getting the attention it needs. It could be hosted in there and then you're spreading it around the rest of the facility. So really, really, really clean hard and, uh, you know, start looking at, like I said, really, really nooks and crannies is where I see it pop up a lot. The places that are hardest to clean usually get cleaned the least. And that's where we see things being, um, fostered and held. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've found growing at home is, um, 
you know, the more attention to detail I put in before I start growing it, the more fun it is to grow in it. Um, anything that is going to be more difficult to keep clean, it's just not as much fun. Right. And so a lot of times like, oh, I'm so excited to get these seeds popping and, and, and start rocking and rolling that, that I'll cut some corners. And it seems like when I, when I do that, I end up spinning two or three times the amount of energy later trying to, to fix stuff up after I've got rolling. So, you know, give yourself a, a little bit of extra patience there, maybe, maybe an extra few dollars just to, to get your setup as nice as, um, as you can afford and, and spend on it, um, both energy and time-wise. Yeah. And don't discount the el elbow grease. <laughs> there's still a huge part of the grower's hands. Like it, there's still work sometimes in trying to eliminate some of these problems. And that can be compounded when you've got, you know, uh, I'll just use my house as an example. I have a dog and uh, my backyard is full of powdery mildew. I live in the Pacific Northwest and it rains here every day right now. Um, so how, you know, what can I do? Well, I don't let my dog in the grow room, <laughs> you know, for starters. And then I just try not to go in there as much as possible. You know, additional steps are adding filtration to your incoming air so you can really isolate that grow room, possibly going to a fully sealed situation if you want to add CO2 supplementation to your situation if you don't already have it, but really isolating that and making sure all of your incoming air is clean and that the room itself is super clean. And, you know, sometimes that goes back to design. You know, if you've got a uh, converted office or bedroom, let's say, and you went in and painted all the walls white and everything, uh, sometimes you can hard harbor mold and things like that in sheetrock. That might be a design element that you decide to change for something like trust core or, uh, you know, uh, real advice from lessons hard learned. Don't staple panda film up <laughs> in your grow room. You know, that's just going to create a place behind that panda film to grow things on your sheetrock. So it's, you know, like we always say the holistic approach, uh, really get in there and hopefully it's not too dirty in there, but be prepared to get dirty and possibly modify some things that just aren't going to work in that situation for biosecurity. And probably the last one I, th I think we um, talk about quite a bit, but we didn't mention here is just environmental control. Don't let things get get to run away on you with the humidity. Yeah, really. If you don't if you don't have something to monitor your environment twenty four seven, I, I would say that's one of the best things, one of the best investments you can make. You know, even if you've got a uh, an eight year old blurple LED that's six hundred watts and you don't like how that's performing. If you have like a high humidity condition at night or at lights off that you're blind to, nothing you do is going to actually fix that problem unless you fix that environment. Fantastic advice, you guys. And just want to add our knowledge base. We've got some articles specifically about powdery mildew and they're pretty great. I know because I wrote them. So check them out. Thank you guys for that. All right, we're going to move on to the next question that came here on YouTube from Ian. Ian writes, I am seeing the substrate EC go down along with the water content when it should be an inverse relationship. It is day 14 of flower, feeding 3.5 EC, runoff pH is 5.7. What would cause this? We have 600 plants and one gallon cocoa. We're using Arroyo with 20 Taros 12 sensors. Oh, appreciate you. Good looking out. All right, what do you guys think? Hungry plants, um, is, is usually what we're seeing in there. Um, you know, and, and we think about, all right, so we're in a one gallon cocoa, our, our nutrient level is a concentration, right? So the smaller uh, amount of water we have in there, they actually, the smaller amount of total nutrients that, that the plant has access to. Um, so that's usually what I see when, when the EC is dropping with water content is that a plant's eating it up as fast or, or even slightly faster than we're replenishing the substrate. Yeah, you know, especially if you're vegging in that one-gallon cocoa pot, uh, there's a good chance you hydrated that, charged it up at a 3.0, drop a clone in, and then we're really not putting a whole lot of water on that plant for, like, let's say that first five to seven, even eight days, throwing a clone into a one-gallon. We're putting on some small shots to encourage root growth, but in order to get that vault or that, you know, mass of salt into there, we have to deliver enough nutrient solution with our concentration to actually get that amount in. And a lot of times what we see is even feeding at a 3.0 in veg, if we're going in and say we got a 14-day veg and we're not not feeding an appreciable volume until day seven or eight, um, at that point, once the plant takes off, if we've only ever reached about a 3.0, because that's all we've done is continue to put in 3.0 as the plant's eating and replace it, suddenly we'll go into flip 
And once in flower, we go to 12-12, that plant takes off. That stretch starts going and its needs for EC increase dramatically. And if you start, you know, general value is anything below a 4.0 going into flip in most of today's modern high intensity environments is going to be not necessarily deficient, but it's going to be difficult to stack EC up on top of that because that plant is eating through almost everything you're putting in every single day when you're at that low EC state. So typically when we see that EC line be parallel to the water line, the water content line, that usually corresponds with a pretty low EC situation. If I had to guess, your in-root zone EC is probably between a two and a four. And basically it goes up when you add water and salt in, and then that plant's taking out most of what you're adding in throughout the remaining um, you know, 23, 24 hours. So goals for next time. Get that EC up in veg. And, you know, one little trick that I've definitely employed is like, hey, I've been feeding a 3.0 in veg. Most of my plants are somewhere between a 2.1 and a 3.2, let's say. I'll go in and feed at a 4.0 for a day or two before transplanting just to try to stack a little bit more up in that root zone before flipping over into flower. Awesome. Ian, good luck. Keep us posted. All right, Nana dropped this question on YouTube related to EC as well. They're wondering why running straight fertilizer salts at a lower EC is satisfactory. Is there something like a filler or anti-caking agent in Athena that causes such a high EC? What do you guys think? I mean, different nutrient blends are just going to result in different ECs. Um, that we see it across the board. Uh, as far as is there anti-caking agent in these? Yes. Um, Quite, quite a few of the mainstream manufacturers um, do put an anti-caking agent in their salts. And it comes from direct feedback that we see uh, from the clients where they're like, hey, I, you know, I had a rock-solid rock, rock solid block of nutrients and it's damn hard to mix because I got to beat it up with a hammer first. And um, uh, you know, most nutrient suppliers that we see these days, when they get responses of, of um bags that have gone solid on them, they, they just replace that stuff. And, and so that's why they do caking agents is one to keep the clients happy. And then two, to keep, um, return product down. Yep. And it, you know, also it's a recognition that, Hey, most of our, you know, bigger growers out there, number one, we're going to mixing salts. Number two, automation's entering the game. So we're usually mixing a lot of these salts from a concentrate solution. So it's in the fertilizer company's best interest to ship you salts that you can mix up in an extremely high concentration for injection. So basically if I'm trying to put, you know, uh, close to a pound of fertilizer in a gallon of water when I'm making that concentrate, that really needs to dissolve. If I start to have fallout in that concentrate mix, then that's ruining my injection ratio and making it very difficult to achieve my target ECs. So it's like Jason said, yes, they have all that and uh, be happy about it. I've definitely used stuff in back in the day that did not have any uh, any appreciable characteristics for being adaptable to different situations, you know, like uh, there's some products I've used in the past that I basically had to use, you know, water pH down to like 5.5 and at about 90 degrees to make it to dissolve it in a solution and then dump it into my greater reservoir. And uh, hey, you do what you got to do, but that's not exactly like a desirable trait for a product on a commercial level, right? Right on you guys. Thank you. Okay. Danny dropped this question. He's looking for you guys' individual like specific experience based on your experience. What causes Hermes the most? Uh, the fact that although we describe it as dioecious, most plants have the ability to express hermaphroditically. So Genetics plus stress. Genetic potential times your environmental potential always gives you your outcome, whether it's your intended outcome or otherwise. <laughs> Hopefully the intended one. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a thing we run into a lot, actually. And it's, it's something that in the commercial world, it's really frustrating for a lot of people who are a lot of growers who are running like, you know, what in their eyes is a Ferrari of a facility, right? Like, hey, I can do anything I want in here. And I'm like, yeah. But this strain herms every single time you grow it. And, you know, most other strains you grow don't. So is it your skill as a cultivator? Maybe you could grow this in an environment where it doesn't herm. But, you know, I personally have seen genetics that like, well, like, let's say extremely high VPD. 
So, okay, we, we grow a, a desert plant that's just beat up. It has small buds and we're looking at half the yield we'd normally get, com, you know, compared to any other strain we grow. And at that point, it's like, hey, just because we haven't put the genetic research into figuring out why this plant's doing that, it probably still is outside of any kind of economic viability to try to grow it in a way where it doesn't harm. So, and, and we've seen, you know, at this point with such a, you know, some people are pretty good at keeping track of their breeding proje projects and lineages, but there is no, you know, overarching system that lets us verify anyone's breeding projects. And sometimes that's what we see some strange, strange things happen. Just switching some plants, you know, light spectrum from HPS over to a more white LED spectrum seems to push herm, uh, push out herms in these plants. Now, there's a couple different things to look for when we're talking about herms too. Are they more stress related? Is it happening in week six, seven, eight after we've got full on bud set and we're, you know, just seeing a lot of stress in the plant at that point? Usually that corresponds with, uh, you know, other signs of stress on the plant. We've got fading leaves, some leaf tip, leaf tip death. And then the other sides is the other side of it is, are we seeing actual pollen sacs drop anywhere from day 10 to 21 before we even have real bud set? And that's going to result in those buried you know, fully mature seeds. Um, if I'm seeing those pollen sacks drop, immediately pulling that out of production because there's a good chance that I am absolutely not going to be able to overcome that in an economic way in my facility. And that's a big risk to all the other plants that I have in that room. And, you know, there's, when we're talking about stress herms, that usually is just a stamen popping out of a developed nug. Uh, a plant that is truly genetically a hermaphrodite, that's when we're seeing those fully developed pollen sacs that actually produce an appreciable amount of pollen. All right. Got to check, check for that strain viability always. Thank you for that guys. All right. We got this question in from Instagram. Somebody's looking for your recommendations. What size pump would you recommend for a 12 light setup, 16 plants, each light, two drippers per plant. They're wondering if you would go with a three uh, GPS Netafilm drippers or something else. What do you think? You know, 0.3 um, gallons per hour Netafim drippers are kind of the standard in the industry. Um, there, there's a few newcomers on the street as far as those drippers go that that um, I I personally like as well. So you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily just be locked in with those. But usually the the lower flow drip rates, 0.3 is is one of our most favorites. To um, Two drippers per pot is a great way to go, just in case uh, you know you start to see some clogging on one of them, or or just to you know just to basically a redundancy. Anytime we've got redundancy in production, and it might cost us a little, but it's never going to hurt us in the long run. Yeah, 0 0.3 to 0.5 gallons, pretty standard. One thing that's uh, is terrible and awesome <laughs> about irrigation technology is if you do this for a few years, you're going to have a chance to play around with different types of drippers if you want to, because <laughs> they all break eventually. So yeah, that 0.3 to 0.5 gallon per hour, um, as far as a pump goes, you don't need anything too crazy. Just put your zones out and make sure you've got enough flow. We're not putting on, you know, if you think about any of these irrigations we're talking about, 600 milliliters would be a gigantic irrigation. That's about a whole day's worth of water for a lot of these plants. Usually we're in that like one to 300 milliliter for a big shot. Um, that's not, you know, if you project that across your entire uh, irrigation zone, that's not a whole lot of flow. The biggest thing we're looking for is getting, you know, a lot of pumps at the three quarter one up to two horsepower, just enough to give you proper line pressure. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. I think Netafim specs are most of drippers at between 12 and 15 PSI as far as the opening pressure. So really what we want to do is make sure that we're at probably 20 PSI throughout the whole line. Um, and ideally, when you are running that line, uh, try to do it in a loop so you don't have any dead ends on there where you're losing pressure as we're losing water going down the line. Um, yeah, that's just going to help make sure that the uh, uniformity across the room in irrigation helps us create uniformity in, in our crop as well. Yeah. And don't cheap out like me by the elbows. <laughs> They're <laughs> worth kink. You don't yeah, get kinks. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. You know, just some of those little parts are definitely worth their weight in gold <laughs> at the end of the day and keep it simple. You know, um, Personally at home, if I'm running my little one lighter setup, I don't even have it zoned out. I have a pump with a timer because I don't want another thing to break in there. And at that scale, you don't need anything too crazy and fancy. And one thing I would definitely uh, caution you against if you're in this situation is potentially going with a pressure sensing pump, such as, uh, you know, a dab pump. 
Um, great product. I love them. But if you are in an area where you don't have a drain right next to your pump <laughs> and you develop a leak, that's one of those points where it's like, hey, that could end up filling up your room over time. So just watch out for some of those uh, little hiccups that can happen, you know, and pretty quickly devalue whatever structure you're working in. Outstanding, you guys. This was such a good show. I'm going to go ahead and end the conversation because I have a very special announcement to make. We want to congratulate Michael Worthington of Flint, Michigan. You won an Arroyo Go. Thank you so much for entering our contest. And make sure you're tapped in because you never know. We might be doing some more giveaways in the future. So, Michael, congratulations. And we can't wait to see what you grow, man. Good luck next time for everybody else. All right. On that note, Jason and Seth. Thank you guys so much. What a great conversation today. Thank you, Chris, our producer, for holding it down with me. And thank you all for joining us for this week's Arroyo Office Hours. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io, and our team will show you the ins and outs of the Ultimate Cannabis Cultivation Platform. If you have any crop steering or cultivation questions you want us to cover, drop them anytime in the Arroyo app. Email us at sales at arroyo.io or send us a DM. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We want to hear from you. And if you're a fan of the pod, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss an episode. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you at the next session. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.